Welcome to the Nuances Podcast, where we expand our understanding of what it means to be part of the Asian diaspora. With every guest, we explore our often multi-hyphenated identities, our complicated relationships with our cultures, and how they affect everything from our career choices to our views on anti-racism, disability justice, religion, feminism, LGBTQ plus rights, and more. I'm your host, Lazu, a new American who grew up in the only place a Dota Bird ever lived, Mauritius. I only have one term to define for you for this first episode of season three, and that is the FCC, which is the Federal Communications Commission. They are an independent agency that regulates communications in the U.S. by radio, television, wire, satellite, and cable. Today, we are very lucky to have Mimi Chen. Mimi is a longtime radio DJ who has been heard in Philadelphia, San Francisco, San Jose, and Los Angeles. She is currently at KCSN 88.5 FM in Los Angeles. In her spare time, she acts and has co-founded several tech companies. One is a controversial AI company. The more current company, Vlipside, is a metaverse company. It isn't every day that we get to talk to a trailblazer in the radio industry, so thank you so much for being here, Mimi. Oh, I'm honored to be here. <laughs> so tell us your origin story. When did your interest in music start? And what were you listening at that time that made you think, "Ooh, I want to do this? It's a very long story. <laughs> <laughs> My interest in music, of course, came from the family. My mom was a singer and she made sure like good Asian moms. And I can see you have a keyboard too. got the piano training. And when I went to college, I had a friend who said, hey, they're doing openings at this radio station on campus. It's like, check it out. And I thought, well, hmm, I'd never done, you know, anything remotely like a radio station, considering you're a kid and you're fascinated by that. At that time, there was really no internet This is how old I am. <laughs> Radio was the thing for kids our age, and that was the way we consume music. So I went down and he said, let's go take the test, because at that time, in order to get on the air, you had to take a test. So... I got on the train to New York City. I studied the book on the train. Now, the guy I was with, he had studied for a week. <laughs> Embarrassingly enough, after we finished the test, I was the one who passed and he did not. <laughs> and I have to admit that sometimes if you do the multiple choice questions, because that was what the test was, and I just kind of randomly <laughs> answered questions. And I'm like, wow, the random answers sometimes can do really well. <laughs> yeah. So thereupon, that started my career. It was mostly a series of just accidental meetings. I made friends with one of the local DJs in town, and he gave me the ropes on how to apply to a professional station. Because at a college station, you're just randomly playing things and babbling on however much. But for a pro station, they want you to do it a certain method, which is you record yourself on the radio and you take out all the music, actually. So it's more like a voice tape. And then lo and behold, I got hired. And that was back way <laughs> long ago. And of course, I was still in college. And 
the guy who hired me was, I guess, a fairly progressive guy. And I will say that would be true of all my bosses in radio. They were very advanced in their thinking and perhaps more progressive than the normal spate of humanity in the United States. And <laughs> I was lucky. What can I say? That happened when I went to apply to other stations. I guess they all found me a novelty too, because wow, here's this Asian person and she's just different from everybody else. So we'll hire her. But it was unfortunate that to think in terms of all the staffing that sometimes A, I was not only the only woman on staff, but B, I was the only minority as well. So I was like this double minority. It's like, okay, we could check off the boxes. We hired a woman and we hired a minority. And I think- (laughs) Diversity achieved. (laughs) Exactly. But I also think the sad part in those days that they were more prejudiced against women in general, because don't forget on the radio, they don't really care what you look like. Actually, I take that back because, you know, the radio stations were universally run by men who, of course, when you're a young teenager, you're more cute. (laughs) Was definitely cuter when I was younger. So I'm sure they just thought, oh, we've got a cute girl on staff. (laughs) (laughs) So what music were you listening to at the time? It was primarily rock. I was definitely part of the classic rock generation. So Star Wars, classic rock, (laughs) that's pretty much my life in a nutshell right there. (laughs) That must have been so exciting for you to be a rock music lover and then to get the opportunity to be in radio, to be playing that music and to be meeting those bands, right? That was, I think, everybody's dream job as a kid, because if you're at a radio station and you're breaking new music, this is where all the recording artists, they all wanted to be. And especially in Philadelphia, where I worked at WMMR, that was the radio station to work at in terms of anyone who was a musician recording at the time. And remember, at that time, it was also very hard for people to record because recording costs were very expensive. So instead of being inundated by 40,000 tracks per day like we are now, actually, I think it's more like 60,000 new tracks a day. Back then, it was you get the album of the day. (laughs) So I was eagerly receiving new product, new albums every week as one of the DJs who was allowed to play whatever they wanted, the freeform format. So it was a wonderful time. Nothing but free tickets, free product, getting wined and dined, because at that point, the record labels were very generous in terms of what they were willing to woo you with. And of course, I never did any of that payola stuff. That was back more in the, let's say, 60s and 70s. And by that time, payola was frowned upon. So we were not allowed to do any kind of payola, which I still hear of stories of people who like got free trips and, you know, a little bit of extra things on the side that you're not supposed to get (laughs) pay for play. And it saddens me to see actually that nowadays artists have to get on playlists for say Spotify playlists And I see a lot of pay for play going on in that direction. And that's really against my ethics. I think that's a really sad thing to see. Yeah. 
for artists. Yeah, I was definitely very fortunate to be able to participate in that era where people were so inundated with money because the music industry was really raking in the money so they could spend lots of money on fancy dinners, fancy conventions, hanging out and partying with artists and and just having a great time overall. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound like the dream job. Yes, it was. <laughs> So you went into radio right after college? Yes, I did spend a year getting a master's at Columbia. That was more because I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do after college. And then what did you study? I studied journalism and became a journalism major and master's in journalism. And that was fun, of course, running around New York City for a whole year, getting my friends calling me up at four o'clock in the morning from the music industry saying, are you awake? <laughs> it was, uh, again, it was an extension of having worked in the rock and roll business. There were a lot of rockers running around town in New York City. So <laughs> I don't think I slept much. <laughs> so how did your parents take that decision? They were always hoping that I would become a lawyer. I would get the phone calls from my mom going, are you going to apply to law school? And I think at some point she finally gave up when she realized I was having too much fun. But, you know, when I went to San Francisco and I started working for one of the big rock stations there, it was owned by CBS at that time. And my parents were really proud because CBS was, of course, a big network. And they would tell their friends, my daughter works for CBS. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the lawyer thing might have saddened them, but working for CBS certainly helped. Yeah, for sure. So you were the first Asian American talk radio host for an English midday program. Take us back to that time. What was it like to get that job and to start that job? Did you feel pressure to represent? Were you excited? When I got that job, I actually thought I was being hired to do music. And I didn't have a clue on how to do talk radio whatsoever. I think it was because the guy who hired me was my former boss at the rock station. And I think he was also making up as we went along. We wanted to <laughs> have Howard Stern in the morning and then follow it with similar kind of talk shows. And originally I was hired for evenings at that station and I played a lot of music that I wanted to play interspersed with a lot of talk. And he just said, talk as long as you want. So I had fun talking as long as I wanted. And then they changed me over to middays. They got rid of the midday guy and put me on middays. And I was given a producer who is, I still think, one of the best producers in the industry. He managed to land all kinds of amazing interviews with people every freaking day. I was talking to somebody that was just very fascinating to talk with. I talked with TV personalities like Montel Williams and Kathy Lee Gifford and big industry people, the head of Marvel, Rick Ungar at the time, and all kinds of people. I was just really privileged to have chats with. So it was a fun time for me then, although for talk radio station, because it was brand new, we're talking four hours on the air. Usually, if you're working at a talk station, it's filled with a lot of features and commercials because it's a new station. They were not selling enough airtime. So very often I'd have maybe two or three commercials and it's, oh, my gosh, this is a lot, a lot of talking. And so I had to make up a lot of things in terms of bringing in like little newspaper clips where we would read them and try to get phone calls from the audience. And of course, since it was a very new thing. 
FM radio talk, there were not a lot of callers for the station as well. So sometimes I'd be sitting there just talking to my producer going, oh, I've got to keep talking. Because <laughs> <laughs> my boss at that time said, no, no more music. <laughs> it's like, well, that journalism degree must have come in handy. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit. I think also at the time, because you also mentioned something about having the chutzpah to talk to other people at my station and stand up for myself. I think I also just was naive in terms of my self-worth <laughs> that I didn't realize that I was being an uppity girl. <laughs> I didn't realize that girls were supposed to get coffee for people. So people asking me to get coffee, it's like, no, you get your own coffee, buddy. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you ever feel that you had pressure in terms of being the only Asian, the only woman? Did you have any like stereotypes that you had to work against or were you just not aware of them? You know, what's interesting is I think that the Asians who grew up on the West Coast versus the East Coast have a different kind of life story. Mm. I grew up in New Jersey. I had relatively few other Asian friends my parents had a network of Asian families that we were connected to, but we would only have like parties once a month. And that's when I would see my Asian aunties and uncles. But my everyday life was pretty much all white people yeah. in my school. And to be honest, if we had even a black person in central Jersey it was a very oddity. So I was an oddity. I was pretty much one of three other Asians in my school. To me, my normal life was growing up talking to people who were white, and I didn't even think about me, oh, I'm Asian, I'm very different, except when I was in kindergarten and kids would point to me and go, mom, dad, what's the matter with her eyes? Like, why does she look like that? And the parents would hush their kids up, shh, quiet. <laughs> and I have to credit my mom for always sticking up for herself. So I think that was my role model. Mm -hmm. If there was any kind of anti-Asian sentiments, she would really stand up and say, hey, what are you talking about? Or if she felt a slight. Also, there were a lot of progressive people in the school I went to in central Jersey, New Jersey being a blue state. <laughs> of course, I didn't realize it at the time. When you're a kid, you don't think about politics. Yeah. Besides, my parents were very Republican and my district was very Republican, but they were very sane Republicans at that time. They were very good Republicans. What can I say? They, they felt that you should treat people equally there. So I remember one time my brother the teacher had some sort of anti-Asian statement and my mom got wind of it and immediately told the principal who immediately censured the teacher. Actually, I think she told one of her friends who became quite outraged and dragged my mom into the principal's office <laughs> and said, kids like that shouldn't be told, you know, that there's some problem because they're Asian. She was very righteous. And I give credit to that neighbor for dragging my mom in because my mom, I think, might have gotten used to a lot of anti-Asian statements. You know, moving to United States, it was like, OK, I'm not part of the community here. I remember her sticking up for herself when she felt slighted. So I give her credit for making me the same way. <laughs> That's awesome. 
and great ally <laughs> with neighbor who dragged her to the office. I know. I do think we had a lot of great neighbors in New Jersey. And it's odd to me that some of my childhood friends who are my staunchest supporters are now very Republican. And I don't know what they're thinking. Wow. I'm sorry, but, you know, it's obvious that there's a lot of questions about some of the people in the Republican parties. My friends are definitely not racist, but they're all the racists are in the Republican Party. Just feels like that to me. Yeah. And they tell me, no, 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 there's racist people in the Democrats. And yeah, there might be, but there seems to be fewer of them. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's a very strange state of affairs that we've come to nowadays. And I feel sad about the world. I feel sad for you kids. It's weird because people assume the civil rights movement would change things. And yet here we are today, so many years later, and it's still somewhat the same. Yeah, mm. it is. <laughs> As someone who is newly American, I have very conflicting feelings about it. Yeah, that must have been a wild thing growing up in the African. I mean, you probably had the same experience as me being the only Asian. And so 2% of the island was Chinese. So I actually had, you know, a pretty big Chinese community. And most people were either of African descent or Indian descent or Chinese descent. There were very few white people. Oh, okay. Moving to North America was quite a change for me because I'm not Mm. used to seeing white people. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And that's one thing that's been funny when I've been talking to our guests on the podcast. Everybody's like, I'm always a minority. There's always been white people around me. And I'm like, I never saw white people. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I say when I talk to my friends from the West Coast, a lot of them had huge Asian communities to associate with. And I think they're very used to the idea of, you know, having a very close community, being able to speak the languages they wanted to speak, whereas I was brought up to be the way I am, where I felt very comfortable being the only Asian Yeah, But I I do realize that other people feel differently. I remember I was in a band once where the drummer and the bass player were Black. I took them to a party in Napa, and it was all white people at the party. And I didn't think about it. I just said, hey, let's go to a party. So I dragged them to this party. Then they pulled me aside and said, Mimi, it's nothing but white people. I'm like, (laughs) okay. And they were literally frightened. They were saying, they're going to kill us. I'm like, what? (laughs) For what I could tell, the party was full of stoners, you know, like hippie stoner people who could care less. Like, yeah. So I felt bad for them that they felt that way. You know, nobody should ever feel like they don't belong. You know what I mean? That they don't belong just based on the color of their skin. Yeah. I just walk into places and just assume I belong and that people are going to treat me the way I should be treated. (laughs) Yeah. And then you tell them off when they don't. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Everyone should be the first to say so. Although I guess the problem is apparently the anti-Asian hate thing has come to a head and the violence against Asian is just a little bit too obvious. So nowadays it's don't engage. But I remember. Yeah. One time I was in this alleyway and I was by myself with my kids in a stroller. They were like babies. And I'm walking down this alleyway. This is in Glendale, California. And these two guys start doing the ching chong thing to me. And I, most of the times you walk past, but I got so pissed off. I walked back to them and said, 
hello, do you have a problem? I think they were just so astonished that I got right into their faces and was really angry (laughs) that they just backed off and just went, no. (laughs) Whereas before they were just jeering at me. Suddenly they realized, oh, she's mad. I don't think we should engage with her. (laughs) And then my husband was like, are you nuts? (laughs) You're like by yourself in this alley with a bunch of jerks. (laughs) I'm like going, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I just felt outraged. What can I say? Yeah, sometimes it's really hard not to say something. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? I remember one time I walked away from some situation where somebody was yelling at me and I just walked away and then I felt really angry because you know what? I feel bad. I didn't say something. So nowadays to avoid that bad feeling, it's like I am just going to stick up for myself and say things right back. (laughs) I love the empowerment. (laughs) You should, because I don't want to feel bad if somebody else instigates something. They're screaming at me about things. It's like, you know what? I didn't do anything to you. So why should you approach me and start screaming about something that I have nothing to do with? Either like the go back to your country kind of attitude or, you know, it's like I was born here, buddy. Uh, I'm an American and probably your parents came from somewhere else too. So buzz off. I'm not going to take that anymore. Yeah. I was in a movie theater once and I was getting a hot dog for my husband and this woman next to me, she goes, this country wouldn't be like this if it weren't for you gooks. I turned immediately said, excuse me. And I was ready to punch her out because she was so obviously racist that a guy ran over and grabbed my arm and said, no, don't hit her. She's an old lady. (laughs) Then I found out it was like she was just not mentally there. And the manager for the theater came over and said, what would you like me to do? I can throw them out for you. And I said, you know what? Because by that time, I'd calmed down and just said, you know what, just let them be, tell them, please. That kind of attitude doesn't sit well. Yeah. At least I didn't hit her, but other people might. Yeah. (laughs) I was close to it, though. Damn it. I almost got to her. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find that now you're seeing more of it since the thing? (laughs) You know what? Living in California has its advantages because I don't see much of it as much as some of my friends do. But I do notice that after a certain fellow was a president, apparently people came out of the woodworks thinking it was okay to be racist in front of other people. And I remember one time my husband was talking to a black security guard and they were having a great conversation. And then people drove by in a truck and they started screaming all kinds of racial epithets, including that N-word. And my husband was just so embarrassed. And he goes, not all of us think that way. And the black guy was from Texas. And he said, yeah, no, don't worry about it. I get it. So you still see that kind of crap. And yeah, it disturbs me when I talk to some of my black friends. It's like one of them was telling me that he regularly gets pulled over every month because he's driving a nice car. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, I have this thing now. I hold my hand up. I put my hand on the side of my car and just say, okay, you can get my wallet. I'm going to keep my hands on this car. 
because he knows it's dangerous nowadays. If you're pulled over by the cops, you may not live. Yeah, it's terrifying. That's just a horrible thought. The rest of us walk around thinking, okay, we're safe with cops. We'll just be good and comply. And white people being assholes to cops, you know that if a black person was the same way, that they probably wouldn't be alive. Yeah. When people see these black people freaking out because they're pulled over by cops, I'm sorry, there's a reason for that, people. Yeah. (laughs) They have every reason to be freaked out. Yeah. And I'm like thinking, you're a white person. You shouldn't be mad because they're running away from the cops. It's, oh, they must be guilty because they're running away. I'm like going, no, (laughs) they're in fear, man. (laughs) We've seen too many incidents where things just do not go well. And I'm like going, oh, my gosh, to be able to, to live that existence. Jeez. And not only do they get killed, but nothing happens to the people who killed them. I know. It's just hideous. I'm glad that the cell phone has video captures now where people can see all this bad behavior. And hopefully let's keep improving things. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, you you have kids. What was it like to be a working mom in radio? It was really hard, actually. When you're a first-time mom, you have no clue on how to do anything. And my mom was far away in New Jersey. I was here in California. There was nobody to help me. Some of my friends might be going, oh, you can do it. (laughs) There's no blueprint, nothing to get you prepared for motherhood. You just have to do it and pray that you're not a crappy mom. And of course, if I had my do-overs, I know I'd be a lot better. There were many times where I was working and I accidentally took my baby to work and it was rough because I felt guilty and I had to ignore my kid when I was working. So I was not good. I finally decided they were better off being taken care of by my husband. (laughs) I think all parents do the best that they know how at the time. It's unfair to pass judgment retroactively. You know. Yeah, but it, we all still have our wishful thinking. If I could only do things over again, I would. Blank, blank, blank. <laughs> I'd be more of the tiger mom, I think. <laughs> I was more of the laid back mom. Okay, you can do what you want, kid. I bet your kid liked that. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think the studies show that if you're not a bossy parent, your kid is more of a leadership type because they're used to bossing you around. <laughs> I can see that with both of my kids. It's like they're kind of bossy. <laughs> they're sort of like their mom. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Did you feel pressure from your employers to perform like the men who don't have to worry about taking care of their kids? Hmm. Luckily, I work for people who were fathers, so they understood. But I'm pretty sure that if I'd worked for other people, it might be different. You know, comparing stories between other people who worked at other broadcasting institutions, they didn't receive any sympathy whatsoever. But I got lots of sympathy and lots of leeway. If I was not so great, when I cracked that microphone open, it was like, oh, sorry, it's because I was distracted by the kid. (laughs) And my boss was very nice about it. That's awesome. It's very encouraging to hear this kind of story because it's such a male-dominated field. And before I was into music, I was in tech, so that's also a very male-dominated field. Oh, my gosh, yeah. There's a hideous bro culture going on there. (laughs) 
Yeah. And some of it is so structural. Like there was one place where I worked where they didn't have female bathrooms on every floor. You had to go to a different floor. Every two or three floors had a female bathroom. So you had to go up and down the stairs. <laughs> wow. Want to go to the bathroom. So did you encounter anything like that in radio where it wasn't necessarily done on purpose, but it was just made for men and you just happened to not be one? <laughs> yes and no. I think what disturbed me is there was a bathroom right next to one of the studios I was in, and it would disturb me to see guys going in and obviously not washing their hands because the sink was out in the middle in the hallway. So I would see people run in and then they'd run past the sink and I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> that's when it disturbed me. <laughs> of course, hopefully the pandemic trained people now. We need to wash our hands, people. It is important. And the threat of a pandemic is still over our heads now. It's still there. We can't yeah. get lulled into thinking it won't happen. Again. Now, in one of your other interviews, you mentioned how you shut down men who were trying to take a pass at you or how you told them, I'm not making your coffee, go get your own coffee. You said your mom was your role model. What advice do you have for young women in this industry who face those sexist encounters? Because sometimes I think there's also a little bit of fear of retribution or fear of violence even. What advice do you give to young women in the industry? First of all, nowadays with the Me Too movement, I think the harassment issue has become an important part of any HR department. If you're working for any decent company, then obviously the first place to go is to talk to HR or confide in a close worker in case you're concerned about retaliation for any kind of behavior. I think things are different for women now because of the Me Too and the awareness that women have it a little tougher in the workplace, that there's efforts by a lot of companies to change that. And that includes a lot of the broadcasting industry. A smaller stations, though, that still could be a problem. I would just suggest to people, keep your resume going, keep pushing, because if you're in that kind of situation, then you definitely should look for another job. And let's face it, let's not get too attached to any job whatsoever. We have a changing environment. No job is assured I have seen so many of my friends changing jobs and switching and getting fired, <laughs> getting hired. It just seems to be the normal pattern now. Keep that resume going, even if all is well with your job, because if you want to strive for better jobs and promotions, then don't stagnate. Don't keep yourself in that one position. Just keep pushing forward. And that's the only way you're going to keep yourself out of that job rut. Yeah. Too many women, I think, get complacent. It's like, oh, I have it good here. My employer treats me well. It's, you know what? You deserve good treatment anywhere you go. And if you've worked at a job long enough, you deserve promotions too. Make sure you go and stand up for yourself. Tell your employer, you know, I've been here five years. I deserve a raise. I deserve promotion. You deserve these things. And I think a lot of women get into that thing where it's, no, I'm doing well here, so I shouldn't rock things. No, 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 you got to say things. <laughs> <laughs> got to bring it up. 
So one thing that I know many female artists in music face is when they work with producers, most of them are men. And a lot of times they get into the situation where the producer really was not just interested in producing. They were interested in other things, right? Oh, yeah. There's always that. I've heard a lot of people getting into those kind of situations. That happens in any entertainment industry. And it's sad that way. Producers nowadays are a dime a dozen. If you don't like the producer, fire him and hire somebody else. And there are a lot of good producers out there. You can find them via TikTok, ask around your network, and you should be able to find somebody decent to work with. And the great thing about working with producers is can all be virtual. (laughs) You don't even have to see them in real life. So that means you can just bypass that whole uncomfortable situation totally. That is if you go and learn how to record on your own. A lot of people nowadays, the whole idea is self-production. You should just go ahead, learn recording techniques, learn how to produce your own music. And that was, I wish somebody told me that back in the day, because I relied on a lot of male producers. And I think it's important for people to, again, improve your skills, go out there, learn production. You don't have to rely on somebody else to produce. I always like to work with another producer anyway, with some of the artists that I work with. And I think, you know, another set of ears, especially somebody who's been in the industry is always helpful. Yeah. But new ears are good too, because there are some astonishing things being produced that I sit there and go, wow. Just when I thought that somebody couldn't produce something that intrigues me sonically, it's like the guy who produces, what's that artist's name? Keshi, I think. Keshi's the name of the artist. His producer is just astonishing. And when I hear him produce other artists, he has a certain way of producing a great sound. And I go, ah, now that's very cool. Yeah. There was one incident where you shut someone down when they tried to take a pass at you. What did you tell them? Just... Sorry, buddy, not interested. (laughs) You get a lot of attitudes from men who are in a position of power and they think, okay, I can take advantage of this person. And then you realize if you are not interested, then you're not interested. And you should just tell them that. Don't try to even lead them on. Yeah. Just be honest. I don't know. Maybe women are, again, that meek thing going on of letting people railroad you. Don't let them do that. Yeah. (laughs) I can talk up the wazoo about that. But again, it's a personality thing. And I think the self-esteem thing, it's rampant among women in general, especially young women Mm -hmm. who think, okay, I'm too young and I don't know enough about things. And maybe this is the right way to do things. And yeah. I'm here to tell you, don't let them get to you. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important for young artists to, first of all, get educated and know the business side of things so that they don't have to rely on the men to tell them. Also, there are amazing female producers. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And I'm here to encourage people to work with women producers. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely doable to learn to produce. I did it as well because mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to make my own stuff faster and not have to rely on other people. And it's doable. There you go. Yeah. 
All right. So in a clubhouse room a while back, you mentioned that your daughter is also a musician. Oh, yeah. I wonder if you have any advice for Asian American parents whose kids want to go into music or other creative fields. I know that's a very common theme among many of the creatives I've interviewed where their parents did not take the news very well. <laughs> well, I think it's because we've all seen how tough this industry is, especially for Asians, especially in music. Asians really haven't broken much ground. I think they're doing really well in the acting industry, apparently in all facets of the movie and TV industry, Asians are doing much better. Yeah. The music industry, actually I take that back. Things have changed a little bit. BTS has done really well, but that's because they have the support of an entire country called Korea <laughs> behind them. Yeah. And that Yeah, is- there still hasn't been an Asian American who looks Asian. <laughs> yeah, it's a little tougher. There are some half-halves, you know. Yeah. Bruno Mars and other people who are half Asian. Bruno Mars apparently doesn't really acknowledge that Asian part of him, but There are some people out there doing good work who would be classified as Asian American, even on a half scale. So there's slowly some things happening. It's still tough. And I think Asian parents perceive that. And that's why they want their kids to go into a more stable career. And to be honest, from what I see about how tough the current music industry is, not just for Asians, but also for white people, it's all tough. The entertainment industry is tough. We all know that the acting industry, there's only one or 2% of all actors who are working. Well, that's pretty much the same with musicians. They're having it tough. So, you know, the old adage of don't give up your day job, I would say, Regardless of whether your parents are Asian or not, even if you're a white person, go for some sort of a job where you can rely on. I have a friend in the radio industry, and he's been really successful in the radio industry, and his go-to job is cutting hair. And I found that out, and I made him cut my hair. <laughs> he's pretty good. And he just said, you know, in those times where you're on the beach, we always call the radio beach when you're in between jobs. Have something you can do that will earn you income. And I think that's true for anybody. Our economy is in flux. It's possible we might slide into a huge recession. I feel like there's a recession going on as I speak, but we're in a really weird time where it's that stagflation where we've got inflation but we're also sliding into a recession. So this is a terrible time for the economy. And I can see people trying to shore up the economy and our government. The whole thing about all the financial collapses, the bank collapses, I think that was already forecast. I think there was already preparations made in the FDIC to shore up our banking industry even before all these bank failures. And to be honest, because people are now panicking about banks, it may affect a few other banks. Who knows? But the old adage of don't give up your day job, I think people have the wherewithal to do two jobs at once. You have your musician job and you can do other things. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've come into the multitasking era where people, in order to promote their music, they need to be influencers. They need to get out there and advertise their music. I look at TikTok just as a form of advertising. 
any social media. That is the way to advertise yourself as a musician. Yeah. In one of the other interviews I saw of you, you mentioned that nowadays radios have analytics and it's quite detailed. You can tell what songs people are tuning in and listening more and what songs people are tuning out. And there's a balance to be struck there as a station because you want to keep your listeners. So as a DJ, how important is it to you to help your listeners open up to new music? Luckily, I'm at a station now where the new music and breaking new artists is their mission. That is a mission that probably cannot be supported in a commercial station. My station is a non-commercial station, which means we're supported solely by listeners who donate to the station, and it's a nonprofit radio station. A commercial radio station, though, relies on ratings. They are judged by a people meters. And these are little meters that people actually put on themselves that hear what you hear. And if they're tuned to a station, these little meters pick up your listening. They can hear what you're listening to. They hear the songs you are listening to. That is why I'm saying that each song can be judged on how many meters are listening to that song because of all the computing analytics going on, of the way we are able to track each song that gets played on the radio because of all the metadata within all the songs. The meter will pick up the metadata and say, okay, there's nine meters hearing this song right now. And your ratings can be altered by as little as one or two of these meters. This just goes to show you how few of these meters are within the market. We're talking a huge market of millions and millions of people in Los Angeles, and there's only maybe a thousand meters out there. So your ratings are dependent upon those damn meters. <clears throat> so the commercial radio stations have to play a lot of catalog songs that people know and love because people will tune in and go, oh, I like this song. I'm going to stay and listen to that song. People are very much button pushers, what we call. They constantly change radio stations. For us at KCSN, we play music. We know that a lot of music is very unfamiliar. So our listeners are very adventurous musically. They're going to hear things they've never heard of and a lot of stuff they may not like. Some of our listeners who are older listeners, they may sit there and go, what happened to all that good old rock and roll? <laughs> They're not going to hear it that often. There's going to be maybe one 70s or 80s song played per 60 minutes or, or 90 minutes, depending on the rotation going on of these songs. It's a different game for commercial radio stations versus non-commercial. And I'm lucky to be at a non-commercial. It doesn't pay as well, but, you know, the karma points are there. <laughs> yeah. Now, you're also a singer, a dancer, an actor, and in tech. So tell us about some of your favorite projects outside of radio, either past or present. Because I'm in Hollywood, I started learning acting, taking acting classes. It was just for fun. My kids were young and because I didn't have the wherewithal to get the music lessons like I wanted to. You know, you're always looking for free lessons as a parent. Well, I hooked up with this local theater called the Secret Rose Theater, and it was run by a Japanese lady by the name of Kaz. And she turned out to be an amazing acting coach. She had studied with Stella Adler. 
actually, she was a kid when she came to America and studied with Stella Adler and really understood acting and trained my kids. She helped train me. I'm very grateful to her because she pretty much trained my kids without charging anything. In exchange, we would act in some of her productions for nothing. But that was all as an actor, you want to be always working on your skills. So I did get an agent. So part of my time is spent on auditions. And no, I I just have fun with that. (laughs) I don't look at that as a source of income, again, because A, I'm in a type as an older Asian, you don't get called in that often, you don't have very many roles available. So I just have to look at it the way it is and just say, okay, I'm doing this for fun, even though it can be nerve wracking. I think it's attitude. If you are in one of those entertainment medias, you have to look at it as fun. Don't try to get too self-absorbed with it. I know a lot of people want to make it. I want to make it. I want to make it as a musician. I want to make it as an actor. I want to make it as this or that. Fill in the blanks. And I think to myself, too many people are focused on getting to the top of that little rat heap. We're surrounded by little rat heaps, whether it's music, tech, or whatever. You know what? Just do the best you can and try to be happy at whatever level you are at. Because there's always someone worse off than you are. (laughs) Sure, there's always someone better off than you are. We all want to be like Facebook guy or something like that. Hey, just... At some point, you have to decide this is pretty good and be happy with that. Yeah. And it's also reaching a career milestone is great, but it's also not going to solve all your life problems. You know, it's not the secret to happiness. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You have to figure out what makes you happy. And it's probably not work connected. Yeah. All right. We like to end the show with a section called rapid fire questions. It's a few questions that are one word or one phrase answers. You can explain, but you don't have to. Okay. All right. What is an Asian food that you should like, but don't? I like it all. (laughs) (laughs) That's a valid answer. Except I don't like eating turtles. I've heard that Asians eat turtles and not for me. (laughs) What's an Asian food that you'll never get tired of? Jiaozi, probably. Dumplings, pot stickers. Those are good. Those are good. Vegetarian ones. Yep. What languages do you speak? English. (laughs) Barely. (laughs) And some Chinese. I studied German and Italian and I'm very unpassable. So (laughs) that's about it. You speak Mandarin or? Yeah, Mandarin, Chinese. Eat the Indian. What is your favorite story to tell about your time in radio? About the time that I said the S word on the radio, (laughs) where I accidentally went over time and I was supposed to pick up a news feed. So I just went, ah, shit, (laughs) really loudly into the microphone, not realizing it was still alive, except the guy following me heard it and he was rolling on the floor laughing. (laughs) It's like, Mimi, you know, you had the mic on when you did that. It's like, oh, what? (laughs) Then I spent the next few months in terror. Somebody reported me. (laughs) You get in trouble with the FCC? (laughs) Yeah. At that point, the FCC was really cracking down. $150,000 fines were not welcomed by anybody working in radio. Yeah. Okay. Last one. If there was a biopic on your life, who should play you? Ooh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure... 
a good actor is fine. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was so great chatting with you. Oh, it's very wonderful chatting with you too. And have fun with your podcast. I think it's a great thing you're doing this. Thank you. Here are our takeaways for today's episode. Number one, just because we're POC or people of color doesn't mean that we understand everybody's experience. For example, Mimi would not have known what it's like for her black friends unless she talked to them and found out about driving while black and how a black man driving a nice car will get stopped by the police incredibly often, whereas an Asian American, for example, driving a nice car would not. Number two, you deserve a pay raise and a promotion if you've been at your job for several years. Ask for it. Number three, life is about more than work. Reaching career milestones will not necessarily make you happy and solve your problems. So be sure to work on your happiness outside of your work life. Number four, you do not have to make your entire living off of your craft. It is perfectly fine and in fact encouraged to have other sources of income that you can rely on when you need it. Mimi believes that we have the wherewithal to do two things at once. Number five, being a working mom often leads to feelings of guilt. But just remember that you did your best, so give yourself some grace. And lastly, you do not have to stay in your job just because nothing's terribly bad about it. Keep your resume going. There's a lot of opportunities out there. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends and tag us on your socials at NuancesPod. If you'd like to support the podcast, there's a link in the show notes to do so. You'll find Mimi's links in the show notes at NuancesPod.com. We have no fillers on this show. Next week, our guest will be Sherry Hu, music tech journalist and founder of Water & Music. She's one of my favorite journalists out there. Be sure to tune in. I'm your host, Lazu. I'll see you next week for another Nuance Conversation.